Genesis chapter 25. Now we begin to look at um, Isaac's family. So every family seems to have its tales and legends, and uh, our family also has tales and legends that we like to retell. And one of the stories, Anna's nervous as I'm starting to say that. She doesn't know which story I'm going to tell. Um, one of the legends that our family likes to retell is about when our twins, Abby and Micah, were still womb mates. Um, when Christine and I had the opportunity to watch the ultrasound monitor every month, uh, it, it was honestly like watching wrestling's Friday night Smackdown. Um, Abby usually had Micah crammed into a corner of the womb and was repeatedly kicking him in the head. This is what we saw. Uh, you know, bring popcorn to the ultrasound because it's going to be exciting. From the very beginning, Abby wanted him to know who was in charge. And she's not here to defend herself, but let me tell you, in 24 years, things have not changed. Okay. Now, Abby was born first, of course, and she came out screaming at the top of her little lungs, um, letting the hospital staff know with red-faced force that so far she was not pleased with the accommodations they had provided. Micah, however, took advantage of his womb-mate's departure and decided to spend 24 more minutes alone in peace and quiet. Yes, wise, wise man. And when he finally decided to come out into the world, he quietly kept his opinion about the accommodations to himself. He didn't shout, yell, scream. Um, now, they have both matured in their 24 years, but their personalities are still pretty much the same. Abby feels everything deeply and passionately lets you know about it. Micah keeps his thoughts mostly to himself and likes to enjoy peace and quiet alone. Um, this morning, we're going to learn about another set of twins, Isaac and Rebecca's boys, Esau and Jacob. Um, and in Genesis 25, we'll get to watch, so to speak, an ultrasound monitor uh, and see how Rebecca's boys got along in the womb. Um, and we'll get to get a peek at their personalities, uh, but more than that, uh, we'll discover their destinies. Now, we're going to get more into their destinies later as, as it comes back to um, the blessing of Isaac. This morning, we're going to focus on the second part of what we're going to read today, but would you stand with me? And hear the word of the God who loves you and wants you to know him. Genesis 25, 19 to 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, of uh, the Aramean of Padaram, Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 
The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? In other words, the struggle within, she could feel the struggle within her, and it was probably painful. So she says, if this is the way it is, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Esau, uh, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew... Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Side note, the word Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, you are good, and all that you do is good. And apart from you... We have no good thing. So would you help us to hear and believe this today? In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis is like a family photo album. It's full of snapshots that have been selected to tell stories that help the next generation stay connected to their story, to their identity. And the Holy Spirit, through Moses selected these pictures and stories to show Israel something from their past that can shape their future. Now, on this page of the Genesis photo album, chapter 25, God has something to say to the people who first heard Genesis. Remember, we've been saying Moses wrote Genesis to the people who were living through the Exodus. And so, I want you to stay with me. And listen for what God wants to say to them, because in listening to what God has to say to them, we'll discover what he has to say to us. So there's three questions I'm going to try to answer here uh, for the rest of our time. I I really want us to dig in a little bit to who were the first ones to hear this. We've been saying that, but uh, it's important for us to hear a little bit more about them because it'll make this story make sense to us. 
who did the Holy Spirit through Moses first give Genesis 25 to and what was going on in their lives at the time? Second question, what was God saying to them through Genesis 25? Why is he telling them these stories? What is his message to them? And then from that, we'll discover the third question, what is God saying to us? Is there something uh, here for us, uh, for God's people today? Um, Even now, I want to ask you to pray and ask the Lord to help you to listen for what is in this story that speaks to yours, okay? So let's let's dig in a little bit. Our church, we love the Bible and we love to study it. So we're going to do a little Bible study here to kind of look at who are these people who first heard Genesis and this particularly Genesis 25. Well, they're the people of Israel. But remember, Israel was Jacob's name later that God gave him. So these are the descendants of Jacob. Um, Jacob had 12 sons, and eventually when the family came to be around 70, God sent them down into Egypt. And after 400 years, 2 million of them left Egypt. And remember, that was what God had promised Abram in Genesis 15, he said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's who, where these people are who are first hearing Genesis. They're in the, I just got brought out of Egypt by God, part of their story. And one clue that this story is meant for those who were rescued from Egypt is the description of Esau as red and hairy. You think, what? what Well, um, red, the word Edom sounds like red, and the word for hairy is Seir. And those are actually later become the names of the regions where the people, the descendants of Esau, lived. And God's people, as they come out of Egypt through the wilderness, there's a time when they're going to have to go through Edom and Seir and to get through there. There's a little conflict in the story. We won't get into it. But so that's, this is kind of a clue to them. When they read this story, they'll say, oh, yeah, that's right. We're descendants of Jacob, our Cousins are descendants of Esau, and they live in Edom and Seir. This is going to be familiar to them. Um, Moses wants them to remember in the midst of their journey who they are and whose sons they are as they journey from Egypt to the promised land, okay? So those are who they are, but there's some other descriptions uh, about these people that will help us understand this strange story about Um, a bowl of stew. The people of Israel whom God had just rescued from Egypt are, uh, you know the story, come backed up at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is bearing down on them and they're stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And um, this is what they said to Moses when they realized we're in trouble here. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
Sarcasm was not uh, a recent invention. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we, had, what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Here's, here, here's what they were saying. Egypt is better than what God has promised. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt than sons and daughters in the wilderness. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt than sons and daughters in the wilderness. Well, their story goes on. The people of Israel uh, traveled on and they got hungry in the wilderness. In Exodus 16, they set out for Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel, which came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So two and a half months since they left Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What they're saying is the food in Egypt is better than what God is feeding us in the wilderness. We'd rather die with full stomachs than live by daily bread. We'd rather die with full stomachs than live by daily bread. We are not satisfied with God and whatever he chooses to give us. We want more. Well, let's go on. Well, let's learn a little bit more about these people. In Exodus 23, the people of Israel are being prepared for the promised land, and God is warning them not to abandon him for other gods. He says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I prepared. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. And here's his warning. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land why? Lest, you, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So there are people who will be tempted to serve the gods of the land they live in. The gods of the promised land just might be better than the God of Israel, they may conclude. And when they get to this new place... Um, they may find out that they like their God, those people's gods better than their gods. After all, it, it looks like life is good for these folks. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, by the way. That means it's very prosperous. It's a place of prosperity and comfort. These people are living better than we are. Something be, seems to be working for them. Maybe I'm following the wrong God. That's the temptation these people are facing. And then finally, one other description of these people who first heard Genesis 25. They were afraid when they got to the, 
to the promised land, they were afraid and refused to go in. You remember, uh, they said, God told them to send 12 spies into uh, the land, and uh, ten of, uh, two of them came back with confidence that God would give them this land, but the other 10 said, no way, this is crazy, we shouldn't do this. Um, and they spread a bad report about it. And, and this is what Numbers 14 describes happened. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, see if this sounds familiar, would that we, have, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They were so afraid of where God might take them and what he might require of them that they were willing to give up and give back the salvation he had given them. They said, we trusted God to save us from bondage, but we don't like the accommodations he's provided so far. Where's this good life and a good land he promised? I don't want to do what will be required of me to live in this new chapter of life God is calling me to, they said. Where we were is better than where God wants to take us. And what was God's response to all of this grumbling over these months? Verse 11 of Numbers 14, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done among them? All of these attitudes they've had all along the way, God summed up as despising and disregarding him, casting him aside, not believing in him, not trusting in him, despite all the signs he had given, him, given them all along the way that he would care for them and take them into their new land. They're essentially saying, here's your salvation back, God. Who you are and what you've done are not enough. We want something else. We want more. That's who Moses wrote Genesis 25 for. And with that background, now the story of Esau selling his birthright becomes a clear message to Israel. And so let's explore. What is that message? What was God saying to them in this story? So let's, let's go back to verse 29 of Genesis 25. And by the way, this uh, 29 through 34 in Hebrew is just 64 words. It's one of the shortest, most powerful stories in the Bible. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Jacob was kind of a wannabe chef. He, he liked to cook. So once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. That's interesting, that Hebrew word that means, that is translated exhausted here, it means more than being physically tired. It also has a connotation of being hungry and thirsty. 
That's how it's used in the Old Testament. So the people of Israel listening to this story, they can relate to Esau because they were exhausted. They were weary. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were grumbling about whether God was going to take care of their needs. God knows his people are weary, hungry, and thirsty. And so he tells them this story. Verse 30, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, there's two things to note here. First of all, the word Edom, I'm saying Edom, it's actually pronounced Edom. It sounds like the Hebrew word for red, which is Adom. Edom, Adom. It also sounds like the Hebrew word for man, Adam. And it's similar to the word for blood, which is dam. This is a lentil stew. Lentils are, are kind of like peas. They come in a pod. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson observed that lentils from Palestine, from where Jacob and Esau lived, were typically yellow. But lentils from Egypt were red. And so being the chef wannabe that uh, Jacob was, he imported his lentils. We're not going to use these local homegrown lentils. We're going to get the good stuff from Egypt. And so he was making this red lentil stew. Keep that, mi- keep that in mind. This is Egyptian lentil stew. Now, here's where God's message to Israel becomes more clear. Verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, we all have children who open the fridge or open a full pantry and go, I'm starving. There's nothing to eat. This is the the way Moses, uh, the Holy Spirit, is characterizing Esau is, wow, what a pitiful character this guy is. The strong, mighty hunter um, is exhausted. I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? The birthright was that the oldest son received two-thirds of the father's inheritance. That's just the way it was. And remember what the Lord said to Pharaoh through Moses when he was telling him to let his people go. This is what the Lord said to Moses about Israel. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And so by telling this story about Esau and the birthright, God wants Israel to remember their birthright. They are his firstborn son. They want, he wants them to remember their birthright and to cherish it. But now, can you hear the people of Israel in the wilderness? We're about to die out here, Moses. It sounds like Esau, doesn't it? What good is it that we were rescued if, you're, if we're just going to die hungry? What good is it to be the firstborn son of God? What use is God's inheritance to me if I have to live faint and hungry while the rest of the world lives fat and happy? 
Friends, this question has haunted me this week. This question on the lips of Esau. Of what use is this birthright to me? What good is it to me to be a child of God? Ever found yourself asking that question? What good is it? What good is it to follow you, God? What good is it to be your daughter? I mean, look. Look look where you have me. And how will you answer that question this morning? What good is it to you to be a child of God? Well, here's Esau's answer. Verse 33, Jacob said, Swear to me now. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And get this, listen to how sparse these words are and how stark. And Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. In the Hebrew, it's just he ate, drank, rose, went his way. Four words. He traded the privilege and joy of being a part of what God was doing in the world to bring the offspring of the woman, Eve, that was promised in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the serpent and who would ultimately make all things new. He was willing to trade the privilege and joy of being a part of that mission, that family. And so he traded a future of truly satisfying life in and with the living God a bowl of lentil stew for a moment of satisfaction. And then the chilling, the chilling verdict at the end of verse 34. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Despised it. It means that he said that it was worthless. And it, and it has, an, has an element of contempt. That's why they translated it with despise. He didn't just say it's worthless, but his actions said, it's worthless. <laughs> There's contempt. And so here's, I believe, God's message to Israel. You're the sons and daughters of Jacob, but you're thinking and talking like Esau. You're children of the promise. The birthright is yours. The inheritance is yours. Don't despise it. Don't trade it for a temporary satisfaction. Don't trade me for God who can't rescue you and who will never fully, finally, and forever satisfy your deepest hunger and give rest to your exhausted hope. The soul, don't trade me. Don't despise me and toss me aside like I'm worthless. Israel, as you face the struggles of walking with me through the wilderness, as you face the challenge that I'm calling you to face, to go into this land and to obey me and live for me in this place where I put you, have courage 
Don't despise your birthright. Lean on it. Lean on it. Friends, I have an Esau heart. (laughs) Don't you? And so what are people like us to do? What's the cure for an Esau heart? Well, it's not to be like Jacob. We'll learn more about him, but he was no saint either. I mean, this story kind of puts the onus on Esau a lot, but Jacob doesn't come out squeaky clean here, and especially later. We'll, we'll learn more about that. So the cure is not to be like Jacob. No, the cure for a heart that despises its birthright is the son whom God promised would come through the line of Abraham one day. The cure is the one who cherished his birthright and shared it with people like Esau and people like us. His name is Jesus. Listen, Jesus did what Esau and we have failed to do. He did what Esau and we have failed to do. Remember in John 4, when he met this woman at the well who was thirsty and didn't know it? He met a woman who, in her relationships with men, had despised her birthright, in a sense. She had, she had been going to a broken cistern over and over and over again, trying to satisfy her thirst and forsaking the God who says, I'll fill you. And Jesus offered her living water. And in that conversation, she ran back to tell her friends uh, whom she had found and the disciples walked up and said to Jesus, um, we, we brought you some food. We brought your lunch. And he said, I have food you know nothing about. And they're like, where did he get lunch? And he said, my food is to do the will of my father. See, he cherished his sonship. He cherished his birthright. He didn't feed on something else. He fed on being his father's son and doing his father's will. And he did that in our place because we won't and we can't. And then remember what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he prayed to the father, he said, take this cup from me. And by that, he was referring to that cup of red, red wine, the red wine of God's wrath for the sins of his people, the sin of despising and rejecting Jesus. But Jesus submitted to the plan that the love of the Father set in motion, and on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's red-hot wrath. Sinclair Ferguson said that by going to the cross, Jesus was saying, Father, in order that the inheritance that belongs to me can be given to them, I am prepared to drink the red stew they have chosen instead of you. I am prepared to drink the wrath they deserve for despising you. 
Listen, Jesus, you're so amazing. Time after time after time, I have despised you and run after other things that would satisfy, I think, my heart and my soul. I've traded you for a momentary satisfaction. I've traded full and final and free satisfaction for that. I've despised the birthright that you died to share with me. And Jesus, for that, you deserve all glory and honor and worth because you became despised so that I would only know your Father's delight. Friends, why would we, why would we despise that? Why would we despise him? But we do. And yet, he's the one who says, when you despise me, come back to me. Come back to me. Keep coming back. Okay, a couple of applications for us today about this. I, I hear the warning that Moses is giving. I hear the warning that God is giving his people. And so, I, as your pastor, I want to share the warning with you to my young Christian friends. Uh, the children and teenagers and young adults of this church who've grown up with Christian families, grown up in the church, I know that some of you are struggling to believe that it's worth it to follow Jesus. Let this story serve as a warning to you. Don't despise Jesus. I promise you, there is more to him than you know right now. So much more. That's why Paul prayed for Christians. He prayed, Father, give them the spirit so that they would have the strength to know and experience the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. What? There's more to Jesus than you, are, than you know right now. And you may think, eh, I've kind of gotten bored with him. You haven't even scratched the surface. And Paul prayed that we would know the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of Christ for us. There's more. And so I plead with you, young friends, don't despise the birthright you've been given, the privilege you've been given of growing up in a Christian family, growing up in this church or another church where you've heard about Jesus. Keep pursuing him. Keep looking for him. Go after him, and you'll find that Jesus is worth everything you feel like you'll have to give up to have him. Okay, now I'm going to talk to the older friends, like me and some other bald-headed and gray-headed people. <laughs> some of you have decided there's not any more Jesus to know. You think, I'm old, I've known Jesus 
a long time. I've been in church a long time. There's not any more to know. Some of us think that we can coast on what we've already learned about Jesus, like, like living off the interest of the investment that we've made in knowing Jesus. Now we can just coast. This story is a warning. Don't despise your birthright. Enjoy it. Taste it. Savor it. Because there's more to Jesus, old folks, including me. There's more to Jesus than we know. Even when we know a lot. There's only a couple of us in here who have seminary degrees and have studied the Bible all our life. And I'm telling you, I don't know him like I want to know him, like he can be known. There's more, there's more, there's more. Just keep saying that whenever you're bored with Jesus. There's more, and I just don't know it. And so, my older friends, I want to say, keep pursuing a sweeter and deeper and richer relationship with Jesus. Pour yourself and pour your prayers out for these young ones, for the next generation, that they would be satisfied in Jesus. Figure out a way to help them pursue Jesus. Let's together show them that Jesus is worth following all the way to the grave. One last application, and it's this table. Did you notice that it says that Jacob served Esau bread and red stew? And he ate it because being a child of God wasn't enough for him. When we eat this bread and when we drink this red, we do just the opposite of Esau. We despise every other thing that promises to satisfy us. And we declare, Jesus, you're enough. Jesus, you're enough. So when you come in a moment, don't come if you're just going to, like Esau, eat, drink, get up, and get out. Come with a heart that longs to know Jesus more, that begs him, please show me more of you. I'm so tired of trying to find satisfaction in other stuff. I need you. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Feed me. Father, that's where we are. We are sons and daughters of God who still struggle with Esau hearts. And um, we pray that as, as we come to this table and we see again who Jesus is, the depth of his love for us, the links that he would go to love us, um, that you sent him because you love us. Help us to be so satisfied in you that we lose our appetite for anything else but you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.